0: Welcome to New Creation, a home for the creative community of Los Angeles. For more information, visit our website at newcreationla.com. And now, the sermon.
1: Father, your word is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Pierce our hearts with the truth of your word. Let it dwell in us richly, that we might reflect your glory in our lives. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Luke 23:27 27-31 The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
0: We do not lose control of our life. What we lose is the illusion that we were ever in control in the first place. I think that we have all felt that in a much deeper way this last week. Loss of control leads to panic and fear. Panic and fear are the final grasps at control. I can at least control the amount of toilet paper I have. Right? That's that's the grasp this week. Then, if I have that, then I feel secure. But panic and fear is a grasp at control and it is completely self-centered. And it is a self preserving endeavor. And when we begin to suffer, the illusion of control quickly disappears. Now, here's the crazy thing most people in our city have not suffered, they haven't suffered yet. It is the mere threat of suffering that is undoing people with panic and fear. It's not even suffering that worries us, it's the fact that we might suffer that worries us. And so what do we do with that? Our sense of the good life is one that is completely removed of suffering. Now if you think in in ancient times, suffering was such a part of day-to-day experience with wars, with plagues, with Mortality rates with infants, with mothers. People thought about suffering a lot because it was all around them. You could not avoid it. What role does suffering play in a person's life? It's the question that we have to wrestle with. It was an essential question for ancient people, and it's becoming even more and more of a relevant question for us. Now, if we look to ancient philosophers, Aristotle, who had much to say about happiness, basically said this, that if you have too much suffering, that you cannot live a happy life. That there becomes a tipping point, right, a balance. And if you tip over, sorry, a happy life is just not possible. A blessed life is just not possible. If we consider the Stoics, They would say that suffering was a false belief that your circumstances were bad. And so it was just a matter of thinking about it in the right way. And the goal for the Stoics was just acceptance of everything. Accept what you can't control and control what you can. And so philosophy at large, I think, seeks to change the way that we view suffering. You can protect yourself from suffering by detaching yourself from it and even denying its reality. And so we hear language like, when we when we experience death, well, that's just the natural way of things. It was meant to be, trying to just switch the way we think about it, but not really enter into that suffering. But when someone is suffering you get questions like, why? Why me? Why is this happening? Why would God allow this? Is there an answer that we can give that just takes the pain away? As you were sharing that question this morning of, how do you comfort someone when they're weeping? Did anyone say, oh, I just give a strong argument. I give an intellectual answer. Did anyone say that? No, not a person said that, right? What did you say? I'm sure the conversation was very similar around the room. I'm with someone. I weep with them. I suffer with them. I try to encourage them. I hug them. Right? So the answer to suffering is not an intellectual answer. And this is The good news of the gospel. That God's answering to suffering is not just, okay, I've got a a teaching for you, a philosophy for you. God's answering to suffering is a person. For suffering, God sends his very son, Jesus Christ, to suffer with us and to suffer for us. And that is our comfort in suffering you have to be with people in suffering you have to sit with them you have to enter into it and that is the way of the cross God sending his son to be with us to suffer with us and for us now we've been going through a series for Lent on the journey to the cross looking at Jesus's journey and the hope is that as we engage his journey that it would shape our journey it would shape us as we seek to pick up our cross and follow him daily and so we are in fact called by jesus to do that exact thing so we're going to look today at this encounter with jesus and the daughters of jerusalem that we might learn something of what it means for us to pick up our cross as we see Jesus continue to carry his. And so let's start with uh, verse 27 of our passage in Luke 23. There it says, And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. So if you remember back over these several weeks, you'll remember that There is different factions of a crowd kind of amassing together. And so you have the religious leaders that are irate. irate. They're so angry, they want Jesus crucified. And they kind of provoke the crowd together to yell, crucify him, crucify him. So you've got the religious leaders and their crowd. You've got um, the Roman authorities, the guards, So what are they doing? They have scourged Jesus. They have beat him. They have whipped him. They've slapped him. They've spat on him. They've insulted him. So you've got that kind of representation as well. And now we see here in verse 27 that there's also this group of women. And this group of women is sympathetic to him. They are mourning and lamenting What they are seeing. Now, in this time in Jerusalem, there was actually a profession of mourning. When someone would die, uh, often you would hire professional mourners to come to wail and weep. And so some of these women may be kind of part of that even professional occupation. But there is a genuineness to their weeping. They are seeing Jesus tortured, and they are weeping over it. Uh, Several years ago, probably most of you, I would assume, have seen the movie The Passion of the Christ. And in watching that movie, I think that movie was kind of bringing you to the same place of these women, that they're watching this horrific event unfold before them that they know is not just. And so as we watch that movie, and as those women watched it in person, there's this weeping, right? Probably many of you cried when you saw that movie, or you saw other people cry and weep when they saw that movie. What's wrong with weeping, right? Is that a bad thing? Well, think about it this way. People who are... Not Christians are plenty capable of watching the passion of the Christ and weeping. Weeping at those events does not save anyone. So why should they weep? Let's go to the next verse. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me but weep for yourselves and for your children." So he says, don't weep for me. What a strange, odd request. If you think about Jesus' journey uh, to the cross here, he's been silent since the moment that he was condemned. He's not said a word. He's not said a word to all the mocking, to all the, the torture. Not a word. We've got all these voices coming at him. And then the voices that begin to weep for him, that's the one that he responds to. And he says, don't do it. Don't weep for me. Now notice that Jesus does not say, don't weep. He says, don't weep for me. Because here's the thing. Weeping is necessary. We see Jesus himself weep. One of my favorite passages in all of scripture is John eleven thirty five, the shortest passage in the scriptures. What is it? Jesus. Jesus wept, right? And so even Jesus, when he sees suffering, when he sees the life of his friend and even knowing that he can raise him from the grave, he stops and he enters into that grief and he weeps. Weeping is very appropriate. And so this is, there's no sense in Christianity of uh, uh, like a league of their own. There's no crying in baseball, right? It's not, there's no crying in Christianity. There is crying. We have a weeping Savior. Okay, so he says, don't weep for me. Why? Here's the reason why. Jesus is doing what he set out to do From before the foundations of the world. The son of man came to give his life as a ransom. He's doing what he came to do. When John the Baptist first saw him, he said, behold, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Referring to the the lamb that was sacrificed. He's saying there's the, the lamb that will be sacrificed for all the sins of the world. Jesus came to die. He is doing his father's will. And so he says this is not something to weep over. This is something that I have set out to do. That I have come to accomplish. Don't weep over that. Now again, the passion of the Christ, we see people weeping. I think mostly reacting to the torture to the injustice, and it is horrible what happened in that. But again, you can weep at that movie and not be a Christian. It does not save you. And so what Jesus is saying to the daughters of Jerusalem is your weeping is misguided. You're weeping for the wrong thing. Okay? So what is it that we're supposed to weep for? He says to weep for yourselves and for your children. Again, what an odd response to these women. He's saying, no, don't weep for me, weep for you. Weep for your children. Huh, why? Why would I weep for me? Why would I uh, weep for my children when I'm watching you uh, suffer and be tortured? And here's what Jesus is getting at. When you see the cross, when you see what he has done, you should see what you're guilty of. It should bring you to repentance. What you should see in the cross is your sin. How many of you watched the Passion of the Christ and went, Oh, my sin is that bad? It requires that? That's what we're supposed to weep for. It is a weeping of repentance that Jesus is calling us to. When we look at the cross, we don't weep for Jesus' suffering. We weep that it is on our behalf. Our sin is that bad. And Jesus is telling the daughters of Jerusalem, if you just weep for me, You are missing the whole point. Weep for your sin and for the sin of your children. The real injustice here is that it should be you on the cross, not Jesus. And so then Jesus furthers his point with a prophecy and with a proverb. Let's take a look at the prophecy in verse 29 and 30. He says, for behold, the days are coming. When they will say, blessed are the barren and the wounds that never bore and the breasts that never nurse. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. So Jesus is, is prophesying. He's saying there is a day coming. There is a day of judgment coming. And in that day, it will be considered a blessing If a woman has no children, whoa, okay? Because all of scripture up to this point said that is the most blessed thing, to have children. And yet Jesus is flipping it here and saying, in this day, it will be a blessed thing not to have children. You want to know why? Because suffering will be so great, and the suffering that will be experienced will not uh, discriminate on age it won't discriminate on gender and so that means this that if you're a mother you're going to watch your child suffer and that will be such an awful terrible thing that you'll say blessed is the one who doesn't have children and who doesn't have to go through this suffering it will be like the days of old in hosea ten eight. When they use that same language in the old, uh, Testament, we have Israel and they have been, uh, displaced, God is chastising them for their rebellion against him. And they use this language that it's so bad that they would plead to God for their deaths. They would say, bring an earthquake, that the hills would cover us, that the mountains would roll over us. And that description actually comes in 70 AD, not many years after Jesus has died and resurrected. In 70 AD, we had the fall of Jerusalem. So about four years before, in 66. You have this kind of rebel force in Jerusalem take hold of the city of Israelites. And four years later, the Romans come in and they decimate the city. They burn it. They burn it down. They burn the temple. And the suffering of God's people is horrible. It's everything that Jesus described. Now the trouble of that day in 70 AD was just a prelude to an eternal suffering for those who reject Jesus. Uh, Revelation 6 uses the same language as John gets this vision of the last days and people are wishing for the same thing. May an earthquake kill us because the judgment is so. Terrible. And so the warning is to us as well. It's to us today. The warning is that to reject Jesus is to reject his blessed presence for all eternity. And he says that when that day comes, that great day of judgment, that it will be like wanting an earthquake to kill you but never happens. Horrible, horrible suffering. And so Jesus is making this plea to the daughters of Jerusalem. If you only weep for me and for my suffering and not your sin, then this will be your fate as well. Feeling sorry for me is actually still rejecting me because it's completely missing the reason for my suffering. I came to relieve your suffering, Jesus says. It's totally backwards. The women of Jerusalem are thinking they're uh, empathizing with Jesus. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm actually trying to relieve your suffering. It's upside down. And so Jesus then goes into a familiar proverb. Uh, let's look at, there's our verses in Hosea and Revelation. Um, So he goes into this proverb, verse 31. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? So the proverb was a a common proverb at the time. And it had to do with wood. And so if wood is green, it means that it's alive, right? And so if it's alive, then it doesn't deserve to be cut down. It doesn't deserve to be burned. But if a wood is dry, that means that it is dead. And so if a wood is dead, it does deserve to be cut down. It does deserve to be burned. And so what Jesus is saying in this proverb is this: that Jesus is like the green wood. He is life. He is righteous. He is innocent. There is nothing in Jesus that deserves to be cut down. And so, if he is being cut down, how much more so for Jerusalem? Jerusalem is like dead wood, is what Jesus is saying. And if they are actually deserving of being cut down and burned, if Jesus experiences it, how much more so Jerusalem? Don't weep for me, daughters of Jerusalem. He's saying, if you knew what was coming, you would weep for yourselves, you would weep for your children, and yet if you understand the cross now, you'll weep for your sin. And knowing why I am here, and you will avoid then that coming judgment. And so the message to the women of Jerusalem is this. It is repent. Believe. That is what Jesus is saying to them and that is what he is saying to us. And so we get this incredible picture in this story. We see God's heart in the midst of suffering. And it is this. That Jesus in the midst of his suffering is others focused. He is not focused on himself, he is focused on others. That is God's heart. There is a complete lack of self-pity in the absolute worst suffering. There is this incredible desire to see these women repent and be saved from judgment. Now what does that mean for us? Carrying our own cross. How do we suffer and make sense of it? And here's the thing. Suffering, again, the answer is not just an intellectual argument. Suffering is a mystery. Suffering is not a problem. Suffering is a mystery. And here's the mystery. Through the cross, we see this that suffering is the way that Jesus finishes his work. In the cross we see that suffering is the way that the world is made right. In the cross we see that suffering that its answer is not a philosophy or a teaching but it's a person. Jesus has come into our suffering. He's not only suffered with us, but for us. And so the suffering of Jesus accomplishes something. And that means this, that our suffering accomplishes something as well. Let's take a look at Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. What could our suffering accomplish? Well, Paul says this, but we rejoice in our sufferings... Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Suffering has a purpose. It does something. James tells us this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you will know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing." Suffering accomplishes something. When we suffer, we suffer for Christ. We are not. Alone. He is with us. And not only that, He gives us one another. We have each other in our suffering. Let's talk about just for a moment what this looked like in the history of the church. In the third century, there was a pandemic that swept across Italy and Africa and the Western Empire. At its height, it killed more than 5,000 people each day in Rome. Some cities had their populations wiped out by more than 60%. And during that pandemic, guess what people did? They panicked. Many people abandoned the sick and they left the dead unburied. People fled the areas where there was a sickness and they Abandoned the elderly, the sick, and the disabled. But there was a class of people who refused to panic. The last non Christian emperor was a man named Julian, and he wrote this during that time The recent Christian growth was caused by their moral character, even if pretended, and by their benevolence towards strangers. And care for the graves of the dead. In a letter to another priest, he wrote The impious Galileans, that was a name for Christians, the impious Galileans, Christians, support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. So Christians, instead of leaving the city, stayed at great risk to themselves. They cared for the poor, and the sick, and the elderly. It was the way of the cross. That suffering accomplished something. It accomplished something great. Now, what does that mean for us in this time, in our cultural moment? It means this, that suffering, our suffering, needs to be others-focused. How do we do that? I want to give us a couple ways. One that we would have a gospel witness of shalom, a gospel witness of peace. And so we can do that in worship, just like we're doing here this morning. There is something hopeful here. There is something here that is worth risking. We have peace. We make vows to God and to one another. We feast on grace, on God's word and at his table. We have community. We are known and we know. So we can witness that gospel uh, aspect of shalom as we worship together. And we can witness that, that gospel shalom just in our everyday lives. And so that means this, that worry and panic are not in our toolbox. That's not what Jesus gives us. We need to lead with faith and with hope. We need to be open to conversations about faith and hope in the midst of panic and fear. And as you actually do that, it will give you more faith and hope as you have those conversations. So another thing that we can do. So one, gospel witness of Shalom. Two, caring for others, especially the vulnerable. How do we do that? Number one, we pray. We need to just pray, pray, pray in this time. Pray for not only ourselves and our families, but pray for one another. Pray for our neighbors. Pray for our families, for our coworkers. Pray for all those who are just being infected with panic and fear. We can pray for them. Another thing that we can do is avoid hoarding. Instead of hoarding, we want to share. We want to not lead with hoarding, but with generosity. So how do we do that? A couple ideas uh, that I heard this week that I thought were so beautiful. One person said, hey, I've got an extra room. I've heard that college students are being displaced. I could open my home up to another person. Another person said this, what if we did a toilet paper drive for the elderly? I love it. Okay? So all these things, you don't need my permission, okay? Just go and do them. Be generous. Care for the vulnerable. Another option that we can do uh, at our hands here is visitation. Now that may be a little tricky as we are exercising social distance, but think about the different ways that you can do that. You can do that with phone calls to people who you know are isolated. To give a call and just say, how are you doing? To give a call and say, I'm thinking about you, I'm praying for you. I have faith. I have hope. I want to share it with you. We can do that through text. We can do that online. We have those at our fingertips. And lastly, I think one of the ways that we can care for others is, in fact, social distancing. The more that I've read on what's going on, the more that it seems the goal is to slow down uh, the spread of the coronavirus. And one of the ways that we can slow it down is by limiting our exposure to it. And what we might think of ourselves, you know what, like if I get it, it's not going to be that big of a deal. I'm not worried about it. I'm going to go and just kind of do all these things. But if we're others focused in that and say, you know what, I'm going to create social distance for the sake of the vulnerable. Because if I go out and I get it, that's one thing, but I actually might give it to somebody else who's more vulnerable. And so in love and in kindness towards those who are vulnerable, let us exercise wisdom in that social distancing. We have a kingdom opportunity here. One historian said this that the trace, uh, you can trace the rise of Christianity to three major plagues in the second, third, and sixth century. He said Christianity grew because people looked at the incredible witness of Christian during those times of crisis. Instead of panicking, they demonstrated tremendous faith and compassion. And so I ask you, how might God use you for his kingdom? at a time such as this. So let me close with this. I want to remind you of three things. One, may the cross remind us of our sin. Let us weep over our sin when we look upon the cross. Two, may the cross show us the mystery of suffering. That what comforts us is not teaching or philosophy, but a person. It is Jesus Christ. He came to suffer with us and for us. And three, may the cross show us in the midst of this suffering, or even just this threat of suffering, that Jesus calls us to be others focused. And may that be the witness of New Creation Church today. Each week through Lent, we've been going through a fast. And so the first week we fasted from sweets and coffee. The second week from internet and social media. Last week, we pondered what the thing is that we want more of. And as tough as the fasts that have been doled out by me, How much tougher is the fast that's been rolled out in this moment? So it it would be a cruel thing, I think, for me to add more fasting to you. (laughs) There's so much we have to fast from from already. Uh, What was on the fasting list was movies and television. (laughs) I would just be cruel. Let's just close the doors right now. (laughs) Nobody's coming back. You're going to shut us up in our home and no movies and television? Come on. So we're not going to do that. But I want you to think this week about what it looks like to lead with generosity, to lead with an other's focus this week. What can you let go of that you're grasping onto that someone else needs? Fast from that. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word this morning. We give you thanks for this story. It's hard to hear. There's, there's warnings, there's judgment, but there is love, incredible love in this story. We see your heart, O oh God, in this story. That even in the midst of suffering, that you are caring for others. That you are trying to lead others away from destruction. Lord, remind us this week that suffering is a mystery that is found in you. It's not answered in philosophy or teaching, but in the person of Jesus Christ. And that our suffering accomplishes something because yours did. And so Lord, help us to pick up our cross and follow you with confidence, with faith and with hope, and most of all, with love for others. We pray it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this sermon and encourage you to become a regular member of our online community. To find out more about the church, visit our website at newcreationla.com.